Amen. Good morning. It is good to be with you. For those that I have not met, my name is Ryan Keith. I'm the community engagement pastor here at the church. And we are going to be in 1 Thessalonians today. We're finishing up our series on 1 Thessalonians and the theme of Keep Awake. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 5. But before we get there, I want to talk to you about two things. The first is next week, we're going to turn our eyes and our hearts toward Advent. And we're going to begin a series looking at the names of Jesus from Isaiah 9. So um, I would really encourage you. And so I'm going to do uh, just to, to linger on Isaiah 9 this week in pre- preparation for next week. Uh, yeah, so we explore the names of Jesus. And, and the second thing I want to tell you about is I got a call yesterday from Pastor Trent. And Pastor Trent called to tell me that he unfortunately tested positive for covid and he asked me to fill in for him. And uh, I, I want you to know that he is doing well so far with mild symptoms and he really appreciates your prayers and wanted to be transparent because just he's part of this flock as well and would covet your prayers for him and in the week to come and Amanda and the kids. But he's doing well. And uh, you know, he's a friend of mine and we work together and I, I, I was, of course, you know, first my thoughts were for him, and, and then I, I, after we hung up the phone, I also thought of last week when he started his sermon, and he said, uh, have you ever been in a place where you felt unprepared? <laughs> and I was like, hey, you know, this shepherd here, this guy, uh, is, is, is living, giving me an opportunity to, to uh, practice the text. And so I appreciate that. He's always thinking of us. But, but in all seriousness, all jokes aside, I do feel prepared. I do feel prepared because Trent spent his hours, many hours this week preparing, and he gave me his notes, and we talked yesterday. And, and I do feel prepared, and, and I, I pray that our time together is, um, is edifying to you. As reading through his notes and preparing to preach, and now I share them with you, I pray that you then share them with your life group and people God puts in your path that we are in the edification business. We are building something together. This isn't about Trent. This is about us as a body of believers. Why we come here week after week it is not to consume content and say, oh, wasn't that good or wasn't that bad and then forget it, right? We're actually here week after week to take steps to consecrate our, consecrate our lives, our bodies, our minds, our souls, because we are housing the Spirit of God in us. So we need to to join together week after week to build one another up as vessels for the Lord, ready to meet our King. Uh, Our our theme throughout 1 Thessalonians has been keep awake, keep awake. And, and this, just even being asked by Trent yesterday to preach today, it's such a good reminder that we can't scramble at the last hour trying to get everything right, right? That we need to constantly be ready to make a confession of the hope that we have in Jesus. We need to always be ready to share the truth of the Lord, always. We often don't have hours and hours to prepare to give a hope that we have in the Lord. 
We need to be ready. We need to keep awake and get ready for our king. Trent shared this very helpful note for us. He said, we can't be who we're supposed to be or do what we're supposed to do without each other. Our our prayer and desire is that we are the kind of church, that we are the kind of Christ followers who are awake, ready for Jesus' return. And our closing text in 1 Thessalonians 5 speaks to that very fact. Um, As we turn to 1 Thessalonians and finish the sermon series, what I want to do is I just would love for you to join me in prayer for Pastor Trent and his family this week, and, and also welcome the Lord to be with us now as we turn our attention to his word. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for our pastor. We're so thankful for the gift that he is to us, and we thank you that you are a God of mercy and a God of healing. And we pray that you draw near to him even now, Amanda and the kids. We pray that in their week of isolation and quarantining, that they are reminded by you on a daily basis that you're with them and watching over them wherever they go. That you remind them that we as his Brothers and sisters in Christ are praying for him. And even if we can't be with him in in his presence and in him and ours, our spirits are joined together in prayer. And And I know Trent would also want me to say that, Lord, we pray that we grow in the kind of people that are praying for one another and encouraging one another, even when we're apart. We pray for those who can't join us for a variety of reasons, sickness, health, whatever. Can't be with us, Lord, that that we never grow tired of praying for them as well. And Lord, now as we turn our attention to 1 Thessalonians, I pray that you feel honored by the preparation of Trent and our desire First and foremost, to not just hear from Trent, but to hear from your word, your living word, that your word is present with us now. And that we get to consume this word, and I pray, Lord, that your word and your spirit has your way with us. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we close out First Thessalonians, it's important to just take a quick step back and think big picture and remind ourselves that our culture, our culture shapes us to think about everything individually, right? Like you don't just have it your way, you have it your particular way. Um, No better expression of that is Starbucks, right? When you go and it's not just like caramel this, it's like caramel with drizzle of this kind of thing. Like there's there's all, and and I like Starbucks, so I'm not picking on Starbucks. Uh, but it's just one example of many of we don't just, we're not just told to have it our way. It's like our even particular way that can change and vacillate. So when we read scriptures, we often think about things just for us. How does this apply to me? And we dismiss it sometimes as this does not apply to me. We have to remember that in the New Testament, the you is corporate. It's us. 
Surely individual um, salvation is true, right? Like that I will stand before God, you will stand before God and have to give an account for you personally. But the sanctification of the body, the building of the body, the applying of the New Testament is a corporate activity. So I wanted to give us that warning, maybe, because our brains don't go there instantly. And I think it's essential for this text as we finish this important book. So let's read 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 12. This is what it says. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 12 till the end. It says this. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, that this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Friends, today I want you to hear this overarching message. We will only be ready for Jesus to come back if we create the kind of church he loves. We will only be ready for Jesus to come back if we create the kind of church that he loves. And we see this evidenced in several places that we just read. Taking a step back, um, picking up from where we left off in verse 11, where we are told to encourage and build one another up, right? And then in verse 23 through 24, that final blessing, let me just read it again, because it is so good, so rich, and it bears repeating. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And then all the instructions from verse 12 through 22 bring about this blessing, this call for complete sanctification, complete readiness of spirit, soul, body for the return of Jesus. He will bring it about because he is faithful. That's who he is. And he does it through the forming of the kind of church he loves. Again, we will only be ready for Jesus to come back if we create the kind of church that he loves. So since this is true, and, then, and since we should think corporately about this, about how to build the church, today what I want to do is I want to give us four markers of the kind of church Jesus loves. Four markers of the kind of church 
Jesus loves. And the first one is godly leadership. Godly leadership. Paul begins in this text that we just read with our relationship to those who lead, um, but presumes that these leaders are a certain kind of leader. He mostly like, likely has elders in mind, um, but the principles apply more broadly. Anyone who leads must recognize they have an impact on the life of the church that is greater than others. That is why the scriptures testify that we should be held to a different account by God. Hebrews 13, 17, you can write that down. Hebrews 13, 17, this is what it says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. As a preacher and leader in our church, I, I can affirm the gravity of this passage. I can honestly tell you that when I preach, I don't worry and I don't get nervous about speaking in front of you or large crowds. What I get nervous about is that I've wrestled thoroughly enough with what God has for us. And I want to honor the Lord that these, these passages, I know that I speak with the authority of God. And up here, and we speak with the authority of God infiltrating your hearts and your minds and giving you a truth that we're declaring is of the Lord. And making sure that we are ready to honor the Lord with what he has brought for us today. So I don't worry about you all in the crowd. I worry about honoring the Lord. And we should do that too in our lives. We should worry about honoring the Lord. In today's text from 1 Thessalonians 5.12, we learn some traits of godly leadership. And let's read that again. 1 Thessalonians 5.12. It says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So they labor and they admonish they labor. It's godly leadership is they labor. If you lead, you better work hard. No half measures. The work of the shepherd is hard work. I don't know if you, do you like knock-knock jokes? Anyone like knock-knock jokes? Okay, there's like five of you. There's, I mean, they're pretty popular. They should really go away. But anyway, my kids keep bringing them to me, right? They keep bringing them to me, knock-knock jokes, and they've got knock-knock jokes for me. And they go around, it's like a little road show around our house telling whoever was willing to listen to them. And one of them will go like, knock, knock, you know, and I'll say, who's there? And they'll tell me, right? But before they speak, the other one jumps in and ruins the punchline, right? <laughs> Super annoying and what was funny becomes this fight that now I got to deal with and, you know, and then they go again, they try the next person, knock, knock, who's there? You know, and the fighting continues through the house. <laughs> let me live, let me steal the punchline. Pastors hate the joke of we only work on Sundays. We hate that. And so when people are going to say, like, oh, you only work on Sundays, you know, um, whenever someone's about to say it, I jump in and tell it for them just because it's, it's not funny. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's not funny, but we all say it. And I'm a pastor's kid, so I've grown up with that joke like my entire life. And I clearly know watching my dad work that he does not just work on Sundays. Um, but a, a labors, a leader's labor in teaching, praying, intervening in trouble should be evident. It should be evident. It might not be evident to all of us all the time, but the people that we're with, 
will know that we've been present, that we are laboring on their behalf. And actually most of the things I've learned since becoming a pastor, most of the things I do, people never know about, right? Because it's in the quiet corners of, you know, hospitals and houses and living rooms and like just ministering to people where they are. We don't all see that. Those who are exemplifying godly leadership labor. The other thing they do is they admonish says that they admonish. That means godly leaders correct people when their thinking or actions or are wrong. A leader can't be afraid to correct their people because if they're afraid, that's the result of trying to please people, not the Lord. A leader who never challenges you or confronts you isn't a godly leader. I, I want to take a minute here to encourage you that like, you know, we actually, in a way, we counted a blessing when some of you feel unsettled with the things that we're saying. You know, we've waited on the Lord and we are praying and wrestling and then we give you it. And if you're upset about it, you know what? Sanctification costs something. Change costs something. We're okay that you're unsettled if it's of the Lord, and we'll talk about that later. But it would not be right of us, and it would not be right of you all to not admonish those who are not living rightly. And we'll talk about that more. But this isn't all Paul has said about godly leadership. You can go back in chapter two, which we preached on earlier in the series, and, and let me just list them from, from chapter two. He, he lists quite a few traits of godly leadership. I'm just gonna list them for you. In verse two in chapter two, bold gospel proclamation. Godly leadership should be marked by bold gospel proclamation. And then in verse three, he said, a sharp mind to discern truth from error. And later in verse three, honesty and no attempt to deceive. And in verse five, no flattery or greed. And in verse seven, gentleness. Godly leadership is marked by gentleness. And in verse 8, similarly, it's marked by loving, warm, and sacrificial time and resources. The church we have to build to be ready for the return of Jesus is one with godly leadership. The second mark of a church ready is submission to godly leadership where we see this kind of leadership, we should submit to it. Not only that, but Paul seems to go as far as to assume throughout his letters that this should be our default position. It is true that leaders abuse power, but we shouldn't approach every leader assuming that they are doing that or will do that. It shouldn't be our default position to believe that they will. We already saw Hebrews 13, 17 earlier, but now I want you to see this. In 1 Timothy Five, verse 17 through 19, this is what it says. First Timothy 5, 17 through 19, it says this. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
in 1 Thessalonians 5, which is our main text for today, of course, we're told submission to godly leadership involves respect and esteem. In verse 12, it says uh, respect means to acknowledge their leadership, to see them as your leaders, to actually see them as your leaders, to affirm it in your life and welcome it. But a lot of times we throw around respect, like with our friends and our neighbors, like with all due respect, and it's usually not respectful, right? Like with all due respect, you're an idiot. <laughs> you know, thankfully people don't say that to me very often. Sometimes they say that to me. Sometimes it's true, right? But that's not respect. Respect is to acknowledge their leadership in your life to assume that they have something to offer you to respect them and trust them. That's why we say submit to godly leadership, not just respect it. Because we don't really know what respect means, it seems, very often. And in verse 13, we learn esteem is what it means to submit to godly leadership. And to esteem is to have a high opinion of them and guard that opinion in the face of gossip about them. I know after growing up as a pastor's kid for over 40 something years, I know that people talked about my dad. And a lot of times people talk about leaders, especially in the church and spread rumors that just aren't true. They're just not true. I, I know that and I know that, you know, some of you go home and you sit around your dinner tables and whatever and it's great and you're talking about the sermon but then you're dissecting like, well, he seemed a little off today and this and that and like trying to figure out like, you know. Our goal is to, to speak what is true of our leaders, to esteem them. We have a responsibility to call out those who are speaking those words of untruth and go to the leader and ask them rather than just believe a rumor. That's why in 1 Timothy 5.19, what I just read earlier, it said, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. We have to be careful. This failure to submit to godly leadership creates division in the church. That's why he connects the body being at peace with these commands to respect and honor. The church we have to build to be ready for Christ's return is one where people submit to godly leadership. And the third mark is wise love. Wise love, wise love. Paul transitions to how the people treat each other in this kind of church. We know that because even though he refers to admonishing, which can make us think he's addressing leaders still, we see he uses the word brothers, brothers and sisters, brothers again. If that addressed the whole church in verse 12, it still applies addressing the whole church in verse 14. He is giving us instruction of how we can love each other wisely. How we can, how we can love each other wisely. So I just want to give you a few examples of what it means to love wisely from this text from today. In verse 14, it says, we're, it's not just leaders who correct, we all correct. Remember the corporate we. We all correct. Specifically, when our brothers and sisters are being lazy about living out God's call on their lives. Like, 
Our world needs the church. And if you have a gift to sing and you're not singing, if you have a gift to teach and you're not teaching, if you have a gift to shepherd or pray or show mercy, if you have a gift to help us grow in patience, whatever God has given you, if you're not giving that to us and giving that to the Lord, we all lose. A, a church that, that loves wisely needs all of us to do that thing. We don't have time. We don't have enough resources for a lot of us to be hiding in the corner, just upset that the world is the way that it is. We have to go about the Father's business and give generously, give big, love wisely. God has given you gifts, friends. God has given each of you. If you are a follower in Christ, if the Holy Spirit is in you, he has given you gifts that he wants to develop and nourish, not for you to hide it in a corner, but for you to roar with the proclamation of the gospel and God's work in you. We need each other. We can't do it on our own. We need each other. If you've got a gift that you're withholding from the church, a skill, a gift, a God-given gift, you're missing out, we're missing out, and the Lord is not receiving his due. That's what I mean by correcting. To, to put a crown of potential on people's head and say, I see that gift in you. Use it. Admonish them, correct them by putting a crown of potential. And I say, I see that gift in you and I need you to give that to us. That's what we mean here. And very related, in verse 14, it says, encourage the faint-hearted. When we see brothers and sisters who are hurting and we are gentle with them. This should be our first instinct. Correction may come, but gentleness and empathy come first. Revive the heart so that the ears can hear truth. And they may already be walking in the truth and need no correction. We should encourage the faint-hearted. In reading Trent's notes yesterday, he has this, has this line that I put in bold and italic so I wouldn't miss it. This is what it says. A faint heart isn't a failure of faith. A faint heart isn't a failure of faith. This passage encourages, encourages us to encourage the faint-hearted. Just because people are faint-hearted doesn't mean they lack faith. And it also, um, in verse 14, it calls us to help the weak. Loving wisely means that we help the weak. The Greek word for weak here most commonly refers to people who are sick. The church Jesus loves doesn't look down on weakness, whether caused by sickness or something else. No, it sees weakness as an opportunity for God's power to be displayed sees weakness as an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. It doesn't celebrate capability, but faithfulness. 
Like, the world wants us to only value people who can produce something for us to consume. But that's not God's economy. God has inherently made you with value. He created you uniquely. And wise love should be marked by a church that helps the weak and helps them see that they're valuable, repostures the hearts of downtrodden people who have been rejected by the world because they can't produce or can't produce at a clip that we love or we need or we crave, actually. But instead says, you have an inherent value. Your faithfulness to be steadfast in the Lord is of great encouragement to me. That even in your weakness, your desire, your yearning to, to yearn after the Lord, you know? Think about like a friend of yours who's been long suffering and they're weak and they are praying and they're praying for you and they're praying for me and they're praying for us, right? They might not be able to work right now or they might not be able to do this or that, but they are being faithful to the Lord. We need weakness because the reality, friends, the reality is that in comparison to the king of kings, we are all weak. Weakness reminds us of our need for a savior and the authority and the power of our God. And our daily breath, our every breath is dependent on his strength and provision to us. The other mark of loving wisely is in verse 15, where it calls us to patience. The Lord Jesus loves a church that is patient with people's maturing process. It isn't angry that people are where they are, it just asks to help them take the next step. Like my five-year-old started kindergarten, any kindergartners out there, any kids, well, if there are any kindergartners out there, you're doing great, I haven't heard you. But any, you know, my kid's in kindergarten and he is becoming a math wizard. I mean, he is, I don't, can pastors, affirm wizardry? I don't know, but he is becoming a math wizard. I'll have to ask Trent next week, but he's becoming a math wizard like dad. What's nine plus nine? 18. Like what's five plus three? Like eight. He's like walking around like this. Whoa, right? It's really cool. I mean, it's amazing. My wife and I were just talking last night with some folks at a wedding that we were going to, and like just it's amazing what happens with kids between like the beginning of the school year to now. It's amazing. But I'm not saying to him like, why don't you know your multiplication, son? 12 plus seven, or 12 times seven, like what's that, you don't know? That'd be ridiculous, right? But that's how we treat one another, right? Like when we have weaknesses and we have growth areas, guess what? We're all sinners and God came for us. His patience for us has no end, it seems. When people aren't where they need to be in the Lord, we shouldn't scorn them or dismiss them or reject them like, oh, you're not like me, like you haven't gotten there, I don't have time for you. No, we come alongside them and say, like my wife so faithfully has done with, with our kids and, and, you know, and navigating online learning, like no, let me just break this down for you. As teachers so faithfully do, day after day, taking the long, the long view, right? The long view. Our goal, our joy, our privilege 
is to show patience as Christ has shown patience to us. It's a demonstration of God's lovely wisdom to us. And we're patient with one another, encouraging one another to take the next step in sanctification. And loving wisely is also marked by no revenge. In verse 15, we see that no revenge is a church that teaches people to ask for and to give forgiveness. It will not allow a a culture of payback to take root. So no revenge. And then verse 25, loving wisely is marked by prayer. It is a church that prays for one another. A rhythm of praying for one another. That's been a theme throughout the whole book. And then in verse 26, that we greet one another. It is a church that is warm-hearted and expresses it. Like, I am excited to see you, and I'm not afraid to show it. That we greet one another warmly. The church we have to build to be ready for Jesus' return is one that loves big and loves wisely. Loves big and loves wisely. And then last, the last mark of a church that's ready for Jesus' return is this. Eagerness to meet with God and hear what he has to say. An eagerness to meet with God and hear what he has to say. Paul turns from how we treat each other to how we relate to God. Let's read verse 16 through 18 again. This is what that says. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So a call to rejoice pray and give thanks constantly. Now always and without ceasing speaks to a regular habit, not a literal never stopping. You know, we do not rejoice or give thanks for all circumstances, right? But we can rejoice and give thanks in all circumstances. When we are in Christ, there's always something to give thanks for and rejoice in. Doing so is crucial to our spiritual maturity. And this is one that we need to grow in, I think. We need to grow in all of these. But these, this is one that, as I was praying and preparing, this one in particular. Some of you know the term paradox, right? Two seemingly competing things at the same time. And uh, some missionary friends of mine do this thing uh, with their kids to teach them about paradox. You know, as they're overseas and, and they have these competing emotions, we all have that, Right? And, and they do this exercise that we've grown now to doing with our kids for quite a long time. Paradox, 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 right? Paradox. We have a yuck duck and a yay duck. So when we process what's going on in our world, we can have a yuck duck, right? That like, oh man, like this is something ha- sad that happened or something that made me uncomfortable or I didn't like that. But then we also have yay ducks at the same time. We have a pair of ducks. Paradox. And you laugh, but you will do this. You'll start doing this because I think we have to grow as a body of believers. We have to grow as people who can, who can reconcile two competing emotions at the same time. Because increasingly, we're shutting down when things get hard. And then we become people that, who God did not make us to be. We have to grow in understanding that yes, times can be hard, but yes, God reigns. Yes, things are difficult and not as I wish they were, but yes, the Lord is sovereign over my life and there is hope in my today and in my tomorrow. Both things at the same time. 
Because what happens when we don't mature in, in understanding how to hold two emotions at the same time, what happens is the rules go out the window and we do what we want to do because we just can't process it. And we say like, this just feels good to say what I want to say. But rarely is that approach helpful. Spiritual maturity requires that we rejoice and give thanks in, in all circumstances, not for all circumstances. Choosing to relate to God at all times as a good father and good provider, the constancy of this speaks to an eagerness to come before God. Like when we pray, when we rejoice, when we give thanks, we're daily posturing our lives to know that no matter what is going on in my today and maybe even in my tomorrow, my God is king and he cares for me and he cares for others. And so therefore, I must keep going with the hope of the gospel, no matter what. I need the Lord to remind me every day that he is a good God and wants to give his church good gifts need that every day. We all need that every day. And then verse 19 and 20, it calls us, it says, don't quench the spirit or despise prophecies. Don't quench the spirit or despise prophecies. Quenching is the picture of putting out a fire. And the spirit's work in church history is often pictured as a fire. And we don't want to squelch anything that the spirit is doing. We don't want to quench anything that the spirit is doing. But folks, we might say that, that we don't want to quench anything that the Spirit is doing, but we quench things all the time. And we can quench them in two ways. The first way that we can quench the Spirit is by refusing things that are from Him. Right? Silly little example. God, help me grow in patience. And then He does. God, help me grow as a person of mercy. Wow, I didn't know there were so many people who needed mercy around me. The thing about the Spirit is the Spirit will do what it wants to do, but we have to allow it to do what it wants to do. I was up early this morning and I thought of our brother Quay. Uh, uh, he's our, our junior high student ministries director. And, and Quay, if you don't know, he's an artist. And, and, and God, you know, as I was praying about this particular passage, I was praying and, and, and I, I trust that God gave me this image of Quay. And, I, and Quay loves making pots and mugs and he's, he's a potter. And, and, and I just thought of Quay like sitting there molding this pot that he's just brilliant. I mean, Quay is just a brilliant artist and so he had this image in his mind of this thing and he was working at it and molding and kneading the clay I don't know if that's what you do clay but and how if it's kneading but like he's forming this thing that when it's done it's beautiful but the clay needs to do what quay wants to do with it the clay doesn't determine the creator the creator determines the clay and in the same way, 
when God wants to do a mighty work in you, it is better to be flexible and bendable and let the Lord do his work. Because when we don't do it, we are not who God wants us to be, and then we wonder, Lord, why am I this way? Why am I impatient? Why do I not have mercy? Why am I not growing in love for my kids or my job or my neighbors? Well, every day I keep encouraging you to wait on me. I keep giving you opportunities to wait on me and grow in these things. And we are saying, no thanks. That not only impacts you, it impacts us. And it helps us not be ready. It inhibits our ability to be ready for the return of our king. The second way that we quench the spirit is by accepting things that are not of the spirit. Right? Things that we wish were true of the Lord. I wish God would say that. And, and if, we, if we latch on to something that we want to do, and even if we know it's of not the Lord, if we think about it long enough, our, our nature begins to justify the things to make it so that it's of the Lord. Oh, of course God would want me to have that. Or of course this, or of course that. God would not want me to withhold what I want in this world. I mean, I don't know how you get there. But if you linger long enough, you'll get there. And you'll accept things that just aren't so. So what I want to do is how do we test whether a word someone feels they've received from the Spirit is truly from him? How do we know? One of our values here at the church is to know God as he is. Not how we want him to be, but how he is. Because how he is is better than what we want him to be. No matter what the world tells you, it's just not true. I want to know God as he is. So how do we know if someone comes to you and says, hey, I was praying for you and here's what came to mind. How do we know if this is of the Lord? Or even me as a preacher, if I'm preaching these things, how do you know this is of the Lord? But I want to give you another lens. If you feel like you've been praying about something and you've got a word to share or a truth that you want to declare or teach or put on a blog or make a podcast about or whatever... I would encourage you to use these filters too. A double filtration, right? When I used to go to Africa, a double filtration on purifying water was a lot healthier for me than just doing it once. I think we could all benefit as a body of believers from double filtration about what we stand in front of people and declare as truth from the Lord. Double filtration it requires time and humility. And when I speak or you speak on behalf of our king or people know that you're a believer and you speak things that aren't true, they assume this is of the Lord. This is the kind of character that God, your God, creates? Wow, I don't want anything to do with that. We are living ambassadors making a proclamation to the world of who Jesus is and that he is worthy of our trust. So what we say on behalf of him matters an eternal deal. We've got to get past this temptation that we too often have to just be like, it's just good to just say what I want to say. It feels great. Very rarely helpful. 
So I wanna give you a five-part test. Just briefly, five-part test to discern whether a word someone feels they've received from the Spirit is truly from Him, or whether a word you think you have received or a lesson you wanna share is truly from the Lord. This is what it is. This is from John Stott, who famously, my favorite John Stott quote is, you might be the only Bible that people ever read. And I think that's really good for this here. You might be the only Bible that people ever read. So John Stott has this five-step process. First, examine the scriptures to see if it lines up. If it's counter to scripture, it's not true. That's from Acts 17.11. The Bereans did that. Acts 17.11. And we see that here in today's text in verse 27. Paul asked the Thessalonians to have this letter read. Just be transparent. Like, here's what it is. Test me. Find something in scripture that disagrees with this and I will not say it, okay? So examine the scriptures, see if it lines up. Second, does it exalt Jesus and confess him as Lord? Does it exalt Jesus and confess him as Lord? First John four, one through three speaks to that. Third, does it distort the gospel in any way? That's from Galatians one, six through nine. Does it distort the gospel in any way? Four, examine the fruit of the one speaking. Examine the fruit of the one speaking. Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. And this invites us to listen to those who labor among us, that we can see their fruit, like we can know them and they can know us. Not be so influenced by people that are on our TV screens or on our internet or on our ears through our podcast that we consume that might have something that we wish God would say but we don't know these people. We don't know if they're of the Lord or if there's fruit to their labor, if there's fruit in their character, or they're just tickling our ears. Just because it's popular doesn't mean it's true. Examine the fruit of the one speaking. And fifth, does the message edify the church? Does the message edify the church? I think it was last week that Trent said, you know, is it true and is it helpful? Those are the rules they use at their house. Does it edify the church? Does it build us up? Is it helpful? 1 Corinthians 14 speaks to that. Does it build up? Does it benefit? Does it convict of sin? Does it produce peace and order? And above all else, does it produce love? The church we have to build to be ready for Jesus' return gathers together with an eagerness to meet with God. Praise him and hear from him. Not squelch him, not quench him, but hear from him. Allow him to have his way with us. Friends, now as we turn from 1 Thessalonians and this theme of keep awake, And now as we prepare our hearts and our minds for Christmas and begin looking at the names of Jesus from Isaiah, know this. I am profoundly grateful for this church. I'm so grateful for you. It's a joy and privilege to be one of your pastors, to to pray for you and spend time meeting with you and interacting with you. And if I don't see you and don't know you, like I'm praying for you. It's such a joy. Let's pray for one another. I'm profoundly grateful that that God in his ways, that that he who has begun a good work in us will bring it about to completion. Like he is making us ready for his return. 
But to get there and to be ready for Christ's return, we need each other. We need to be collectively, corporately working to bring about these things. We can't do it alone. We can't do it alone. We need each other to keep awake, to be ready. And we'll be, we will only be ready for Jesus to come back if we create the kind of church that Jesus loves. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your instruction to us. And I pray, Lord, that you are with us now, that you have your way with us. Lord, we thank you for the book of 1 Thessalonians. We thank you for the lessons that we've learned. Help us to grow in becoming a people, a body, a church that's ready for your return. Help us to grow and to be in the kind of church that you love. Hear our praises now. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.